Welcome to Ophthalmology Morning Commute, new clinical approaches and sequencing of age-related macular degeneration treatments. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Genentech, a member of the Rush Group. In this episode, Dr. Arshad Kanani and Dr. Carl Vigillo take a deeper dive into their discussion on treatments of neovascular AMD, including anti-VEGF agents and some of the newer agents, including a bispecific antibody that inhibits both VEGF-A and ANG2. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash AMD2. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Kanani is Managing Partner and Director of Clinical Research at Sierra Eye Associates and is also a Clinical Associate Professor at the University of Nevada, Reno School of Medicine. Dr. Vigillo is Chief of the Retinal Service at Will's Eye Hospital and a Professor of Ophthalmology at the Sidney Kimmel Medical College, Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Kanani will begin our discussion. Welcome back to our continuing series on age-related macular degeneration. I'm Arshad Kanani with CRI Associates, and it's a pleasure to have my good friend and colleague, Dr. Carl Rigillo from uh, Ville's Eye Hospital here. Carl, thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be here, Arshad. Thank you for having me. So, Carl, let's talk about uh, the treatment landscape for neovascular age-related macular degeneration and talk about what we did in the past and what we are doing now in terms of uh, transforming how we are treating our patients. So let's uh, start with uh, anti-VEGF therapies. Um, so, you know, you've been in practice for a while and you have seen the transformation that anti-VEGF therapies have done in terms of uh, outcomes for our patients. You know, before anti-VEGF therapy, we had photodynamic therapy. And before that, we had thermal laser and patients were losing vision over time. And with with anti-VEGF therapy, we were able to maintain vision and to improve vision uh, in many of our patients. So so can you provide a little bit uh, high-level overview of treatments, uh, as you call them, first-generation, bevacizumab, ranubizumab, aflibercept, uh, and brolocizumab in terms of the timing and how these treatments were started and how they have transform in terms of uh, getting better durability and, and and how you're treating your patients in clinic in terms of uh, treating an extend approach versus as needed approach. Well, as you know, I'm a little older than you, so I've been practicing <laughs> a while longer and I've lived the bad old days in practice, the pre-anti-VEGF era. So circa 2006, that's when things really changed for the better. That's when we had the first highly effective anti-VEGF agents, intravitreally administered drugs hit the scene. Before that, like you said, you know, long ago in the 80s and 90s, early 90s, we had just laser and it could barely help, you know, maybe five, eight percent of our patients. So the vast majority of patients that got wet AMD had disastrous vision loss. Legal blindness was the usual, typical, common uh, outcomes of a, an eye that turned wet. Uh, and that all occurred over a 12 to 18 month time frame. 
the knee vascularization would play out. It would grow, uh, leak, bleed, scar, and then you've got the end-stage scar uh, situation. Now, photodynamic therapy was around the year 2000, and that did help. It was the first time we could treat many of these neovascular complexes um, in wet AMD, and it minimized vision loss, but patients already had vision loss at presentation. It just uh, reduced the amount of vision loss they would, they, they would have compared to natural history. So uh, they'd come in at 2070, 2080 vision, which was not so good to begin with, and then they'd end up around 2100, 200, and that was the success story of PDT. But now, 2006, uh, we had bevacizumab and ranibizumab. Bevacizumab is off-label. Ranibizumab was the first FDA-approved anti-VEGF-A biologic. It's an antibody fragment, of course, injected intravitrally. The pivotal studies was injected monthly. Um, and for the first time, we saw mean visual acuity gains in patients that presented with new-onset wet AMD. It was historic. It was revolutionary. And uh, we saw six, eight, 10 letters gained over the course of just a few months of monthly intravitual injections. And then staying with monthly injections in the clinical trials, we could maintain those gains over two years, which is very impressive. So you're talking patients coming in 20, 60, 70, 80 to start with and improving. Many patients were 20, 40 or better, which was remarkable. They could still read, they could still drive um, or regain those abilities, we'll say. Uh, a few years later, the next FDA-approved drug was a Flipercept. And all three of these drugs really are doing all the same thing. They're blocking the VEGFA isoforms. And um, that does control wet AMD in the, very well in the vast majority of our patients. Not all of them, but I would say north of 75 80% of the patients get adequate control of neovascularization um, with these drugs if administered on a frequent and regular basis. Now, that's the key part, right? Frequent and regular basis, because uh, as we mentioned in the first episode, unfortunately, the real-world outcomes outside the clinical trials, uh, patients aren't coming in frequently enough. These drugs are not that durable. Uh, in the maintenance phase of therapy, that means after the first three or four injections, we call the induction phase. In the maintenance phase, all three drugs average durability is about eight weeks with a range of four to 12 weeks. So we can't extend treatment beyond 12. Many of our patients can't go beyond eight. And that means coming into the office frequently to keep on top of the condition to get the best outcomes. So now a few years later, in fact, just a few years ago, brolicizumab hit the scene, um, a small single chain antibody fragment, um, uh, very potent, seemed to work as well, maybe dry a little bit better and last a little longer, which was key. But we saw some safety issues. Um, uh, up until then, our anti-VEGFs were super well tolerated, very low adverse event rates with these injections. But we started to see excessive or increased rates of inflammation with brolicizumab. So unfortunately, although it worked very well and lasted definitely longer than the drugs, those first generations, as you put it, first generation drugs that we had been using, um, it really doesn't get much use because the safety profile is not as good. So INSTEPS, the most recently approved, we, I still call it an anti-VEGF agent because it is. However, there's a second mechanism of action. For, so that's furisimab. It's a bispecific antibody uh, that blocks VEGF-A like all the other agents, plus it blocks angiopoietin-2. 
So it's dual mechanism of action. And we think that's a lot of what's behind um, the additional durability this drug has demonstrated in uh, in its pivotal studies. So it's just been in our hands. I know you've used a bunch of it. You can certainly share your experience with it. And I've been using it too. And I think it's living up to expectations of being a more durable anti-VEGF drug with this added mechanism of action to explain that that maybe extra drying and or durability. No, Carl, that's an excellent overview of the treatment landscape. And I think you mentioned some key points there. Number one, that our you know, first-generation agents were very effective, but required frequent dosing. And number two, they were very, very safe. So I think any new treatment that comes to the market, I think there's a bar of efficacy, but there's also a bar of safety. And that's why, as you said, brolocizumab obviously met the bar of efficacy and actually better durability, but didn't meet the bar of uh, safety because of risk of uh, vasculitis and retinal artery occlusion. And of course, you mentioned frisimab uh, being a bispecific antibody, you know, blocking VEGFA and ANG2. And as we know from the preclinical data that levels of ANG2 are elevated in retinal vascular diseases like diabetic macular edema and neovascular AMD. And what ANG2 does is that it deactivates the TI2 receptor, which leads to inflammation and vascular leakage. And if we can block ANG2 and stabilize the TI2 receptors, we hope that we can get uh, greater durability. And as you mentioned, the, the phase three Tanaya and Lucerne studies looked at efficacy, safety, and durability of frisimab um, with up to Q16-week dosing compared to a flibercept every eight week per label dosing. And what we saw, the two-year data that um, I presented last year, we saw that approximately 80% of patients were on Q12-week dosing or greater um, at the end of two years in the Tenaya and Lucerne study. And almost 60% of patients were at Q16-week dosing. That's every four-month um, four dosing, which is unprecedented uh, compared to the what we had in the past. Now, obviously, we know that for a new agent, we need to have good safety. Um, and in the trials, the safety was comparable. But obviously, the real-world data is very impactful and meaningful when you have a lot more... Um, patients. And, you know, luckily in the real world data, we have not seen any new safety signals with uh, frisimab. So it appears that it has better durability and comparable safety. Obviously, efficacy is also important how quickly we can dry the retina and if we can help patients with persistent disease with other agents. And that's why, you know, in the Truckee study, as you mentioned, we have looked at that and what we saw that for neovascular AMD, we are seeing better anatomic outcomes with uh, dual inhibition with frisimab compared to just VEGFA inhibition, whether it was ranibizumab or bevacizumab or patients who were treated with aflibercept, we're able to dry these patients uh, who had persistent disease, let's say with monthly, uh, monthly aflibercept or ranibizumab injection. So I think you and I both know that the disease is very variable and we have to individualize treatment for our patients, but it's nice to have a new agent with dual mechanism of action to kind of help uh, them have better durability. Uh, I know, Carl, you've been involved a lot with the port delivery 
system uh, since uh, the early days of it and have presented the data and published much of this data over the last several years. Can you tell a little bit about how port delivery system works and just share the top line data that we have seen from the pivotal trials? Yeah, absolutely. The, what makes the port delivery system unique is that it's a sustained delivery approach for anti-VEGF therapy. Uh, everything else, of course, is intermittent therapy. And as you said, furisumab sets itself apart from the drugs we have been using, these so-called first-generation agents, because first-generation agents all had very similar efficacy, durability, safety, safety being good, as you indicated. And um, the dual mechanism of furisumab gives us that added durability and really does set it apart. So that's a great step in the right direction. We're trying to talk about meeting unmet needs uh, which is drugs with greater durability, duration of action, and therefore less treatment burden. Well, sustained delivery of anti-VEGF means more of a constant level, getting at least a six-month-like effect. That's kind of what most people would consider as sustained delivery. Six months or so before you have to redose, or in this case, refill the device. So what this is, is it's a device filled with a high concentration of ranibizumab. It's 10x concentration, and it slowly releases the device. It's an intraocular reservoir device that we insert surgically into the eye wall that delivers the drug down a concentration gradient into the vitreous cavity. Uh, it's slow release, and uh, it provides a good level of ranibizumab, equivalent to about three weeks after we do an injection of ranibizumab, approximately. And now we'll control disease adequately in the maintenance phase. That is, after patients already been dried up with injections in the office, we then introduce the notion of sustained delivery in the form of port delivery system. FDA approved um, about a year and a half ago, started to be used in practice, but it is unfortunately on hold because of some problems related to the septum of the device, which is um, the septum is how we refill the device in the office. So the device is initially filled and inserted in the OR, and then it's refilled every six months or more in the office by putting a special needle through the septum of the device. Um, and it generally works really well. There's no doubt about it. The phase three clinical pro programs show that the device controlled disease in the maintenance phase as good as monthly gold standard ranibizumab injections. Uh, nothing has ever worked better than that. And so this device controlled disease with minimal supplementation uh, being refilled on a six-month basis. Um, so it gave us sort of the answer to what we've been asking for or the questions we've had about trying to get uh, excellent sustained delivery and durability. Um, but uh, it is a surgery. It is a device. And that alone had increased rates of adverse events and issues unique to the device and the surgery. So the safety profile wasn't on par or as good, and that's a trade-off. And some patients are willing to take that trade-off. Now, right now though, because of the septum issue, uh, that device pl placement of the device is on hold. So if a patient wanted it right now, they can't get it. Uh, we can't implant these devices until the septum dislodgement problem associated with the device is fixed. We hope that happens soon because I really do think this device is well suited for some of our patients that um, have a high need for injections, want to decrease the treatment burden, and are willing to trade off 
some of the increased adverse events associated with having this device and uh, compared to ongoing monthly office-based injections. That's a great uh, summary, Carl, about the port delivery system. And, you know, based on my experience, I think the patients actually are very receptive in terms of preferring the device. So, you know, I had patients in clinical trials and once the device went commercial, I actually implanted the fellow eyes of those patients because they were getting injections every one to two months and they saw the benefit they got from the device. So I actually have several patients who have bilateral device. I think your point about uh, it being a surgery is important because not only, you know, a surgical procedure is not going to have the same adverse event profile as an injection, we know that. But I think what I've seen, at least in my practice also, is the learning that over time. So, you know, the surgical learnings about each step, I think have really helped me optimize my surgical outcomes in terms of, you know, having conjunctival retractions or erosions or endophthalmitis and other things. So I think as a field, we are learning how to do the best surgery, but of course you need to have a device that is, uh, you know, can last a long time. So that's why it's on hold because of the septum dislodgement issue. And as you said, hopefully we fix it because there are patients who will look at the risk benefit profile and would like to have the the port delivery system instead of having frequent injections. So I think it's a subset of patients um, who will prefer it, but I think having that as an option is, is good. I mean, obviously, when you look at sustained delivery, we have gene therapy programs, and you know we can have a whole episode on gene therapy, so we're not gonna dive into the whole landscape, but we have intravitreal gene therapy, we have supracroidal gene therapy, we have subretinal gene therapy, and, and you know, I think, being involved with uh, all of these programs, I think what I've learned that it's a different treatment paradigm and, and we need to see not only just the efficacy, but also the safety. And there've been several learnings about the safety in, in terms of prophylaxis, as well as what dose to use. So I think those learnings are continuing. Um, other group of drugs I wanna talk for just a short time before we wrap up the episode is tyrosine kinase inhibitors. We have multiple different programs that are looking at it. They're pan VEGF blockers. They work intracellularly. What are your uh, thoughts just in general, Carl, on tyrosine kinase inhibitors or TKIs? Yeah, this is in the category. Uh, I find them intriguing. I think they're promising. They're all just entering phase two. So data right now is a little limited, but these are all in the category of uh, sustained delivery because these are small molecules, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, that if you injected in the eye, they'd be gone in days. But they're packaged in a way to uh, be slowly released in the eye, uh, either injected intravitreally in the form of a, um, of a polymer um, or uh, microspheres or something like that that allows the small molecule to be released slowly over four, six, eight months or so, um, or supercoroidally as a suspension to again uh, be delivered over three, four, six months. So we're looking as a, as a durability play. We're looking for an anti-VEGF-like effect, although they're not blocking VEGF directly. Like you said, they're working intracellularly to block the effects of VEGF by blocking the, um, the receptor uh, kinase activation. So it's working indirectly, but it's having a VEGF-like, VEGF blockade-like effect. Um, and I think it's promising. I think we're seeing some good efficacy. 
some decent durability for six, eight months or so in many of the patients, not all of them. Uh, it doesn't necessarily control the disease. They're introduced in the maintenance phase, like the port delivery, just like gene therapy, which means we get the disease under control. We know it's responsive and well-controllable. And then we introduce something that is of greater durability to, in a sustained release fashion. So it's like port, it's like gene therapy. And now uh, with these uh, entering phase two, we'll see, like you said, just what, like with gene therapy, exactly how safe and how effective they are. They're very different approaches. So we're likely to run into some new adverse events that we might not have encountered before. And we saw that with gene therapy. We saw that with port and the surgery and the device. So as we deviate from uh, injecting biologics, that is antibodies or fusion proteins, we're likely to run into some new issues, which, you know, if they're acceptable, great. Um, and if the products work as well, then we've got, uh, we've got another, another option for our patients. That's actually a very uh, good summary, Carl, to, to wrap up the episode. For, for me, I think over the last two decades, we have really made great progress in terms of treating this blinding disease, uh, making an impact for patients around the world, cutting blindness in the world because of these uh, anti-VEGF agents. And now having the first bispecific antibody that blocks VEGF and NH2, we are able to have greater durability. And hopefully our hope is that we'll be able to maintain vision uh, for many, many of our patients. So with that, I'll close uh, this episode. Uh, thank you, Carl, again, for all the insights uh, you have provided and all your experience. And also want to thank the audience for listening to this episode. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash AMD2. You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.